Heavenly Father, we come to you today and thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way that it instructs us, the way that it encourages us, the way that it strengthens us, and the way that it warns us. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would speak to us today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would grant us illumination to not only see it, but to understand it, and not only to understand it, but to live it, to apply these principles to our lives in order that we may glorify Christ in all that we do. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 35. Like I said, we're kind of at a stretch right now where we're covering entire chapters, uh, which is kind of fun. You know, anybody who follows sports knows that slumps are one of the most difficult aspects of sports. If you've ever played a sport and you got into a slump, you know how difficult it is to get out. There's just kind of a a mental barrier. You know, slumps just have this way of depleting confidence of of even the best athletes. Uh, Just a few years ago, there was a baseball player by the name of Craig Council who tied the, the record for the longest batting slump in the history of Major League Baseball and kept his job. Uh, He went 45 at-bats in a row without getting a single hit and kept his job. You know, slumps happen to even the best of players, the the best and the worst. It happens to absolutely everybody. This past summer of, of last year, there was a baseball player by the name of Scooter Jennett who was in an 0-19 slump and he broke out of this slump in pretty spectacular fashion, uh, becoming one of only now 17 Major League Baseball players who have hit four home runs in one game. June 6th, last year, he hit four pitches out of the park, driving in 10 RBIs. Uh, and, and if you know baseball, you know that that is an amazing and very rare statistic. Uh, and after the game, he had this to say about breaking out of his slump. He said, that's baseball, man. It's a crazy game. That's why you never give up. You always try to get better, make adjustments, and I did just that. And the truth is that that's a lot like the Christian life, too. If you have walked with the Lord for a number of years, you know that there are ups and there are downs in this spiritual journey. You you know that there are times when we, as God's people, go into spiritual slumps. Times when God seems just further away. Times when when Bible study just feels like a chore. Times when going to church feels like it drains you more than it fills you up or refreshes you. And so one way or another, spiritually, you, you hit a plateau. At first, you know, it's, it's kind of subtle, and you may not even recognize it for exactly what it is. But the next thing you know, you're not reading your Bible as much. You're not praying as much. You're going to church maybe every two weeks and then once every three weeks and then maybe once every couple months. It's all just very, very gradual. And it might not even be intentional per se on your part, but the loss of spiritual vigor, the loss of spiritual enthusiasm is real. And before long, you notice it. And it's a danger that every single one of us faces. It happens. Even to pastors, believe it or not. 
You know, Jacob has been in quite the spiritual slump. He, we saw in the last chapter, he had backslidden like crazy. 30 years earlier in Jacob's life, the Lord had given Jacob this vision of a ladder descending from heaven. And he promised Jacob that he would protect him and that Jacob would prosper under his blessing. And that marked the beginning of Jacob's walk with the Lord. Jacob's encounter with what we call Jacob's ladder. It's really the Lord's ladder. But over the course of the next 30 or or so years that followed after that, Jacob, he did prosper greatly. And God did protect him, just like God had promised to do. God had wrestled Jacob all night one night before Jacob encountered Esau. And he delivered Jacob, Jacob safely into the land of Canaan. But Jacob had only partially obeyed the Lord as he journeyed into the promised land, you'll remember. God had instructed Jacob not only to return to Canaan, but to return to a very specific place, the place where God had made himself first known to Jacob, a place that Jacob named Bethel. And we can't be sure why Jacob didn't go to Bethel as God had instructed him to. It would seem that he just wanted to blend in with the world and live the same kind of prosperous life that all the Shechemites were living. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted God's blessings, but he wanted worldly comfort and worldly treasure. And the truth is, you can't have it both ways. And so Jacob had settled in Shechem, about 20 miles short of Bethel. And it was in Shechem, you'll remember in the previous chapter, that Jacob's daughter was defiled. She was raped. And his sons, in turn, went on this genocidal killing spree, murdering all the men in the region this family that was supposed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, this family that was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, had become a curse to the nations. Jacob was in a spiritual slump. How do you break out of a spiritual slump? Have you ever been there? How do you break out? You know, it's one thing to to break out of a, a slump in, in sports, it's usually a case of, of mentally overcoming something. But how do you break out of a slump in your walk with the Lord? As we continue in our study of Genesis today, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 35. And this chapter will give us some very important principles for breaking out of a spiritual slump, for renewing our walk with the Lord. And it'll give us some very important reasons to continue walking near the Lord as well. So let's start with Genesis chapter 35. We'll just look at the first four verses to start. Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 to 4. It says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. 
So as we come into this chapter, keep in mind that originally there were no chapter breaks. It just follows immediately after the previous verse. But what we saw in the previous verses, the previous chapter, was that Jacob's world had really fallen apart. The previous chapter ended with him scolding his sons, not for murdering all the the men in Shechem, but for putting his life, for putting Jacob's life and his well-being at risk. That's what he was upset about. His concern was that the people in the land would hear about what his sons had done, and they would turn against Jacob himself. But through the season of backsliding in Jacob's life that we saw in chapter 34, we need to understand something. There was no mention of God in that chapter, but God's grace never left him. God's grace never left him. It was with him all the way through. God never gave up on Jacob. And as far backslidden as we saw Jacob in the previous chapter, if there's any situation where you would think that God would give up on somebody, it was last chapter. Commentators have a fairly unanimous consensus that Jacob spent roughly 10 years in Shechem. So, it's, so that means it's been about 30 years since his first encounter with God's grace. What a spiritual weakling Jacob was back in chapter 28 when he first encountered God. You, you may remember the experience. He named the place Bethel or Bethel, which means house of God. And he made this vow. He said this, and it, it, it's kind of funny, but it's something. He said, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And, all of that, and, and, all that, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I mean, really, it's kind of a pathetic vow. It's all contingent. If God will do this, okay. He can be my God, right? As if he had any leverage whatsoever to negotiate with God. So so it was kind of a pathetic vow, but at the same time, it was something. And his heart, while it it seems, while what he says seems kind of funny, his heart was in the right place. God had begun this work in Jacob back in Bethel. And now, here we are, 30 years later, and Jacob is not only spiritually backsliding, he's not only in this deep, deep spiritual slump, but his life is a mess, and he's now a stench to the people in the land. To use his own term, the term that he used in the previous chapter. But all that was for good. All that was for good because it rendered him ready, perhaps even eager, to hear God's voice. And so it's at this point that God instructs Jacob to go back to the place, he tells them again, go back to the place where you first encountered God. And if you look at verse 2, Jacob immediately obeys the instructions of the Lord. He he doesn't him-ha, he doesn't hesitate, he doesn't ponder, he doesn't ask questions, he doesn't delay. His response is immediate obedience. Full obedience this time. It's not a partial obedience. It's full obedience. He's ready to do exactly what God has instructed him to do. 
And the reason that he's ready to do what God has instructed him to do is because of all the stuff that God let him go through in chapter 34. Now, it must have seemed astounding to Jacob, if you think about it. Ten years of backsliding. And God hadn't given up on him. That must have just seemed so astounding to Jacob. Even after a slump of ten years, God was still with him. And that's an encouragement to me, and I hope it is to you as well, because it shows us that no matter how long it's been since we were walking right with God, He doesn't give up. We can go through spiritual slumps. In fact, we will go through spiritual slumps. There will be seasons in which we backslide. But even during those seasons, even during those seasons when our faithfulness wavers, even in those seasons when our faithfulness is running on empty, God is working on developing our character. And that's what he was doing with Jacob. The grace of God should evoke feelings of immense gratitude within us, which should, in turn, motivate us to respond to the Lord in obedience and faith. And and this is maybe the most important step that you can take if you find yourself spiritually backslidden, if you find yourself in a spiritual slump. The first step is always the most difficult, almost with anything you do, right? But resolve to obey God without any questions, and without compromise. That's the first step to breaking out of a spiritual slump. In Jacob's case, you know, he, he knew that there were things that stood in the way of him getting right with God. As the bodies of the slain Shechemite men lay dead everywhere in the region, Jacob's house was corrupted in at least two ways. Number one, it was corrupted in the sense that the sons came into contact with dead bodies, which as you may know from the law of Moses, was prohibited. So, so they were contaminated in that sense. But in a second way, perhaps just as dangerous, maybe more dangerous, the entire household had been defiled by the plunder of, among other things, gold and silver-plated idols that his sons had gathered from the homes of the men in Shechem. And you'll also remember, uh, Rachel had stolen her father's idols, her father's false gods. So she had her false gods. Jacob's sons and servants, apparently they were all loaded up with idols and earrings that had some uh, pagan religious significance. And Jacob gives them the instruction to put them all away. But they go beyond that, don't they? they? They do more than just putting them away. They give them to Jacob. And Jacob takes them and he buries them. And the thing that I love about this, and I'm not even sure if love is a strong enough word, the thing that I love about this is that Jacob is being anything but passive here. And it's really the first time in his life that he's not being passive as a spiritual leader. Remember how passive he was in the previous chapter? His daughter gets raped and he's kind of apathetic about it. How does that happen? His spiritual apathy, though, is is gone now. He's being anything but passive. He takes the lead role in actively purifying his home and the people that he was head over. He's being the spiritual leader and the spiritual father that he should be. And it's interesting to see that Jacob did all of this on his own. 
God didn't tell him, go back to your family and, and have them give you all their, their idols and, and their false gods and, and put those away. No, he, he, he does this all on his own without God instructing him to get rid of the idols. But this is one of the surest ways of knowing that God is working in somebody's life. They become almost instinctively aware of their need to separate themselves from false gods. To separate themselves and to break away from unholy and impure things and to to put away anything and everything that would render them defiled or that would hinder them in coming to the Lord. If you're in a spiritual slump, there will be idols in the way of you returning to God. Now I recognize that most of you probably don't have a room or a shelf filled with little statues and, and whatnot. Uh, one of our neighbors actually does. But an idol is, is more than just a piece of gold. It's, it's more than just a piece of, of clay or, or, or silver, something in the likeness of an animal or, or a creature. An idol is, is much deeper, much, much more common than just a little statue. An idol is anything or everything that you set your heart on apart from God. What do you love to set your mind on? It's important to know that about yourself. What do you love more than you love God? That's your idol. So what are your idols? What things tempt you? What things give you a deeper satisfaction than God Himself does? What things compete with God for your affections. I mean, it could be all kinds of things. It could be a job. It could be entertainment. It could be a football game. It could, it could be absolutely anything. It's probably safe to say that the one idol that all of us are most likely to share and struggle against is simply the self. The self. The ego. Right? We, we want to do things our way. And we're so hesitant, we're so reluctant to do things God's way without compromising. And and if we're being honest, even when we know what God's way is, we're still tempted to do things our way. We're still tempted to think that our way is somehow better or our way is somehow easier. I'd say that self-esteem is one of the false gods of our culture that has led our civilization so far, so far away from God. If you want to break out of a spiritual slump, know your idols. You need to recognize what they are. And you need to refuse to be at peace with your idols. And and don't just put them away in the sense that you can go back to them someday. By the power of the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit working within you, go to war with your idols. Go to war with the things that contend with God for the throne of your heart. That's the second principle for breaking out of a spiritual slump. And you'll notice that in addition to urging his family to get rid of their idols, he also instructs them to change their garments, which is really a strange instruction. We don't see this in the Old Testament. But this was symbolic of 
putting off the old and putting on the new. Maybe it's what Paul had in mind when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians and told them this. He said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. And of course, Paul was speaking metaphorically. He's not literally saying change your clothes, uh, although Jacob was. Uh, but for Paul, it was more like his way of giving a picture of the idea in walking according to the ways of the Spirit, setting aside all the old, corrupted, defiled ways of the flesh. The idea is just like you can't wear two shirts, for example, at least as your outward layer. Uh, you, you can't put on the new self in Christ without taking off the old self of the flesh. And whether you've been walking with the Lord for five minutes, or for five years, or for 50 years, or however long you've been walking with the Lord, there will always, always, always be old ways of the flesh to do away with and to wage war against. You either bury them or you carry them. It's one or the other. But if you want to break out of a spiritual slump, you must be very intentional about putting them and put, putting all of the deeds of the flesh to death. And if they come back to haunt you, do it again. Bury them deeper. Wage war. Wage intentional war. Take intentional steps against your idols. Anything and everything that hinders you from getting right with God and coming back to Christ. And walk instead in the newness of the Spirit. And when the battle seems too difficult, and believe me, there will be times when it feels absolutely impossible, call out to Him in the day of your distress, just like Jacob did, knowing that when you do, He is a God who is waiting for you and who is eager to grant you grace, to push onward, to restore you, and keep you going, worshiping and obeying Him rightly. And this is exactly what God does for Jacob. What stands between Jacob and his return to Bethel? Well, maybe idols, but that's not it. The people of the land also stood in the way. But again, God grants grace, and He's faithful to deal with every hindrance. Let's look at verses 5 to 8. It says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. So God had promised 30 years earlier to protect Jacob. And Jacob had experienced that protection time and time again. He experienced it with Laban. He experienced it with Esau. Even though he had struggled so greatly 
to believe that God would protect him. God was faithful time and time again to protect him. You'll remember in the previous chapter, Jacob expressing his fear of becoming a stench to the people of the land and you know, after his sons went on this genocidal rampage. That's, that's what he was afraid of. He was afraid after his sons did it. That vengeance would be sought against him. Jacob had struggled with the terror of men. But here we see immediately that God paves the way for his safe travel to Bethel by instilling in the people of the land a terror from God. The indication seems pretty clear. It's that the people of the land would have attacked Jacob and his sons if God had not instilled this fear, this terror within them. So we see that by God's grace and by His provision, Jacob and all the people who are with him arrive safely at Bethel. I want us to consider who he's talking about exactly, who Moses is talking about exactly, when he says all the people who were with him. Who did that probably include? Well, Rachel, right, the love of his life, it would have included her, would have included Leah, it would have included their servants, it would have included all of his sons and their daughter, they were all there. Is it possible that there was anyone else? Well, in the previous chapter, we saw that Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, murdered all the Shechemite men, and that all the sons came and plundered the city in the wake of this genocidal rampage. And we read this in verses 28 and 29 in the previous chapter. It says, They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. All the children and all the women. Is it possible that the little ones and the wives were among those who came to worship God at Bethel. It seems extremely likely. Now, I, I'm, I am the furthest I could possibly be from saying that what they did was good because it was not. It was absolutely wicked. Neither the genocidal killing spree nor the, the plundering of the city, which, which brought all these idols into Jacob's house, neither of these things were good in any sense of the word good. But this is how good God is. And this is how great God is. God is able to bring something that's very good very good, out of even the most deplorable, even the vilest and most wicked human acts. In this case, these women and these children, they would never have known Jacob's God on their own if they had remained in Shechemite culture. But God uses this incredible wickedness that was carried out by his sons in the previous chapter to bring the greatest, the absolute greatest blessing upon the wives and the children that he could possibly bring. And so as Jacob arrives, we see that he builds an altar in this place and he renames the place. We know that he named the, the place, the location, uh, Bethel 30 years earlier. House of God, Bethel 30 years earlier. Now he renames it El Bethel. 
And this is extremely significant because it demonstrates some very, uh, some very significant, some very deep growth on Jacob's part. See, his, his focus on the location 30 years earlier had been on the location. That's why he, he named it the house of God. But when he renames it El Bethel, which means God of the house of God, his focus is no longer on this location. His focus is on the God who is sovereign over that location and every other location. Finally, finally Jacob has come to the place that God had summoned him. He was worshiping with a heart that was once again right with God. He'd started his journey 30 years earlier with such a low view of God. I'm sure that he didn't even realize how low his view of God was at the time, but his low view of God was certainly reflected in the fact that he saw God really as a tool. He saw God 30 years earlier as a means to an end, that being Jacob prospering when he had nothing. Remember, he had nothing but a rock to lay his head on and a cane uh, and to being protected. So God was really a tool for him, something that he could use insofar as it benefited him. But now, 30 years later, he has matured. He's grown up. His view of God is higher as his view of himself has been lowered. He's been humbled. And this is exactly what should happen to every single one of us as we walk for more and more years with the Lord. God has a way of of using our life circumstances, even in times of backsliding. He has a way of using our life circumstances to show us who's really in control, doesn't he? He has a way of humbling us and showing us how much we really need His grace. You know, when, when you're young, when you, when, you, uh, when you come to Christ, you feel invincible. You've, and, and we're prone, as we feel invincible and, and unstoppable and just spiritually on fire, we're prone, as Jacob was, to view God as a means to an end. That doesn't mean that your conversion was illegitimate. It just means you've got some growing up to do. And as you start growing older and older and you start walking with the Lord for more and more years, you start to see that God Himself is not just a means to an end. He is the beginning and the end. He's everything. You start to see that all of your goals, all of your aspirations, all the things that you wanted for your life, they weren't as important as you once thought. It's God that matters. And only God really matters. And this is exactly what we see happening in Jacob. He's reached a lower level of ego as he's reached a higher level of spiritual maturity. That's the way it works. It's like a seesaw. As one goes up, the other goes down. Ego goes up, spiritual maturity goes down. Ego goes down, spiritual maturity goes up. And so it's at this point that God begins to transition into a new generation. We see a new generation coming, and we see a generation passing away. We see that Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, passes away. And what a glorious way to pass. If you think about the context here, she she comes to, to Bethel or El Bethel with Jacob 
and she worships God in this place before she passes. She'd been the nurse to Rebecca, Jacob's mother, and so there's a strong possibility, therefore, that she was actually there when Jacob was born. She was there to cradle him. She was there to care for him as a newborn baby. And so Jacob takes her and he buries her under an oak tree that he calls Alan Bakuth, which means tree of weeping, which obviously indicates how he felt about her death. She was dear to him. She was close to him. Her death, though, was a sign that change is in the air. Jacob would need to continue clinging to God and not to the things or even to the people of this world because his sorrows are really only just beginning at this point. Was Jacob really right with God? Did God fully accept Jacob's worship? Jacob needed to know. And God knew that Jacob needed to know. So let's continue. Look at verses 9 to 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. So about ten years have passed since that night in Peniel when God had wrestled with Jacob throughout the night. And you remember, that night ended with some very significant things. Number one, Jacob had to limp for the rest of his life because God wounded him. But number two, it ended with God renaming Jacob Israel. That was 10 years ago. But immediately after that night, there was this season of very rapid backsliding. He ran into Esau the next day, and Esau invited him back to his place. He deceived his brother and went to settle in, eventually in Shechem. Now, Israel means God prevails. But it sure didn't look like God had prevailed in Jacob on the surface. Because Jacob quickly became passively apathetic toward any and every spiritual matter. And, and so part of me thinks that he must have felt like he'd lost the title. Like that name Israel had some very special significance, and it did. But that he was no longer worthy of it. I'm sure that that's what he was wrestling with. Thinking, God called me Israel back then. But a lot's changed between then and now. But God appears to Jacob here in El Bethel. And he instills in Jacob the assurance of his love, of his grace, of his renewal that Jacob so desperately would have needed. No, he wasn't worthy of the name Israel. But God is a God 
of incredible, unfathomable, immeasurable grace. And so He blesses and He builds us up even when we haven't earned it. Even when we don't deserve it. Which is really the only way it would work. Because we never, ever deserve His grace or His blessing. Jacob has been a backslider. He's been in a spiritual slump, but all along, in God's eyes, he is still Israel. He hasn't lost the title. He's still a child of God. He hadn't lost his standing. And what's the basis for this blessing that he gives Jacob or Israel? It's God himself. Look at verse 11. God says, I'm God Almighty. That's the basis of his blessing. That's why he has the authority to do it. Because I'm God Almighty. Because I said so. Because I am El Shaddai. None can question his judgments. None can challenge his decrees. He's sovereign, and so whatever he says is what goes. And it's interesting that God tells Israel, or Jacob, to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, we're talking about a guy who was getting up there in age. He was probably around 120 years old. Uh, I mean, what we must understand is we're going to see the, the age of, uh, of Isaac that he died at at the end of the chapter. And if you take that in mind, Israel's around 120 years old here. But one of the things that God means when He says be fruitful and multiply is that Israel is to be a father, a man who leads his house properly and diligently. Not just creating physical offspring, but sharing the gospel with them. Instilling the fear of the Lord in them. Teaching them to love and to walk in the ways of the Lord. And then God repeats all the promises of the covenant to Israel before going up from the place He had spoken to him. And what's Jacob's response after he reaffirms all these covenant promises? It's actually similar, if you remember back in chapter 28, it's similar uh, to what he did back then when he first encountered God. He had made a, a pillar of stones and he poured oil on it in an act of worship then. But now he does that, but before the oil gets poured on, he also pours out a drink offering on it. Now what was that? Well, it was probably wine. And so what's the significance of that? Well... Wine takes time to ferment. It takes time. And in a similar way, Jacob had needed time to mature. And you and I are no different. When we first came to know God, we learned some very important things about God, I'm sure. You learned about grace. You learned about redemption. You learned about forgiveness. You learned about faith and obedience. And all these things are very good things for us, for for any new beginner a new uh, convert to learn about. These are all good things to know. But after years and years of walking with the Lord, 30 years, 50 years, 80 years, however long, we know these same truths that you learned at the beginning of your walk with the Lord, but you know them at a deeper level, don't you? Or shouldn't you? I mean, you you still believe in, in God's grace, but you know it not only up here. You know it experientially. You can testify to its fullness. You can testify to its strength. 
You can testify to its sufficiency in and out of every single season of your life, the ups and the downs. You still believe that faith is necessary, but now, after years of walking with the Lord, you know by firsthand experience that it can get you through the difficult and the impossible valleys of the Christian journey when nothing else can. So if you find yourself in a spiritual slump, know two things. Know that God hasn't gone anywhere. If you liken this pulpit to something that can't be moved, and this is God, and I'm the wandering Christian. Okay, the pulpit hasn't gone anywhere. I'm the one who's moving, right? And it's the same with God. God hasn't gone anywhere. He's immutable. He's unchanging. You are the one who's wandered if you're in a spiritual slump or in a season of spiritual backsliding. But our God is a God who finishes what He starts. He will complete the work that He began in you. So wake up from your spiritual slumber and go back. Because He hasn't gone anywhere. That's the first thing that you need to know. The second thing that you need to know is that you don't necessarily need to learn new spiritual truths as much as you need to gain a deeper understanding of the same old truths that you learned about at the beginning. Repent and believe, just like you did when you first came to Christ. See, when God's grace opened your eyes so long ago, you, you probably made some kind of vow. You probably said something about you know, a desire to live a life of faithful obedience unto the Lord. If you're in a season of spiritual backsliding, go back to that vow. Go back to that. Pick up and carry your cross just like you did at the beginning. This is a wonderful picture of Jacob growing up, of of Jacob maturing in his understanding of and his devotion toward God. God's grace has been like a constant rain upon him. And sometimes it's been kind of a a Seattle type of drizzle. And sometimes it's been a torrential downpour. But it's always been there. God's grace has always been there. And Jacob needed it especially badly now because his earthly sorrows would continue. Let's continue in verses 16 to 29. It says, when they journeyed, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent toward the tower of Adair. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, 
the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Talk about a change of direction. What a chapter. It's filled with two things, grace and grief, in that order. Jacob experiences God's grace leading up to this point, but then he experiences much grief after his second encounter with God at Bethel. First, his first grief after this encounter with God is Rachel, the love of his life, died in labor. And then Isaac, his father, dies at 180 years of age. I mean, it must have seemed pretty amazing for Rachel to conceive yet again in Jacob's very old age. God had commanded Israel, if you remember just a few verses back, to be fruitful and multiply, and that's what God made happen. That's exactly what what God caused to happen. I mean, if Isaac had been 180 years old and Isaac was 60 when Jacob and Esau were born, that means that Jacob or Israel was around 120 years old here. Well past the years when he could be fruitful and multiply on his own, right? So was it his doing or was it God's? It was God's. It, It was all God's grace. And as she passed away, Rachel names their son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And were it not for God's grace sustaining Jacob during this time, it seems probable that the name would have stuck. But Israel, who, by the way, knew exactly how important a name was, renamed their son Benjamin, which means son of the right. That's a title of favor with the father, which Benjamin indeed did have with Israel. Jacob's failures would, to some extent or another, haunt him for the rest of his days. He's walking right with the Lord, but there are still consequences for years of being spiritually passive. And so, in the middle of this chapter, between the deaths of Rachel and Isaac, we read a a very short account of his oldest son, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, having an incestuous relationship with Bilhah. And it kind of seems like it's coming from out of nowhere, like from out of nowhere they just kind of put it in there. But that isn't the case. You see, Reuben had been born to Leah. And after the death of Rachel, Reuben had feared that Rachel's servant Bilhah would be the next in line to receive Jacob's favor. And so Reuben's seduction of Bilhah was really done to ensure that Leah would be favored, favored over Bilhah. After years of being neglected as Jacob's child, but through Leah, and, and not being cared for, not being fathered the way that he needed to be fathered. After years of neglect, Reuben sees this as 
the way to secure his birthright and to make sure that while he hasn't had Jacob's favor, that that birthright stays with him. See, ancient Near Eastern tradition held that possessing the concubines of one's father would validate succession. And so as Jacob's firstborn son, what he's really trying to do is steal his father's power and authority. He's essentially trying to claim his birthright before Israel dies, while Israel is still alive. But it was a really bad move because if anybody can cheat Jacob, I mean, he is the chief of the cheaters, right? He knows how to swindle somebody. It was a bad move. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 says this of Reuben's power play. It says, quote, He was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. See, Jacob knew all about the desire to have the birthright, and he knew the lengths that people would go to to secure the birthright. But far from being this spiritually passive man he had been for so long, his heart would burn with righteous indignation toward Reuben for the the rest of his life. His final words to Reuben are found in Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, where he says this. He's on his deathbed, and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So at this point, God has indeed taught Israel the danger of being spiritually passive as a leader and as a father. This chapter is filled with two things. It's filled with grace, and it's filled with grief. The previous chapter didn't have a single mention of God or God's name. But this chapter is absolutely filled with God. The name God appears by itself 11 times in this chapter, and it appears another 11 times in the names of Israel, Bethel, and uh, El Bethel. Not to mention another time in the name El Shaddai, or God Almighty. God is all over this chapter. In the grace and in the grief. There's also much grief in this chapter. There's so much grace, but there is so much grief. And we need to understand that grace is really the anchor that prevents grief from overwhelming and destroying us. Without God's grace sheltering him, surely the grief of just this one chapter would have driven Jacob to despair. I know it would have for me drive him to despair. But he's got God's grace to hold on to. And the same is true for you and me. You know, life is filled with trials. Life is filled with things that will give us grief. But if you have believed in Christ, if you have repented and you have believed in Christ for your salvation, cling to Him. Cling to the promises of His grace, and His grace will hold you fast and steady. If there's one thing that we learn from this chapter, it's that getting yourself out of a spiritual slump and walking right with God does not guarantee a life that is free of pain or grief or heartache. 
And we might think that that's what the greatest blessing would be, right? A, a life that's just easy, a life without pain, a life that's just prosperous. But what we need to understand is that God gives us something infinitely better than that. And that is Himself. His Son dying on behalf of anyone and everyone who will repent and trust in Him for salvation. That is the greatest blessing. All the stuff of this world, if if your life is, is comfortable and easy, you never learn to cling to God. You don't learn it on mountaintops like you do in valleys. But trials like these, they really do one of two things. They force you to either focus on yourself or they force you to see how unable you are to handle it on your own. And so you must cling to Christ. By grace, Israel clings to the Lord. He renews his walk with God. So how do you break out of a spiritual slump? In a nutshell, a renewed resolution to repent and obey, to turn away from all your idols, all the things that contend for your heart with God, and to see your daily ongoing need for God's grace in the midst of life's trials. Because the truth is, trials come and trials go. If you've been walking with the Lord for any number of years, you know it to be true. Trials come and trials may go. God uses them to wake us up, to kind of smack us upside the head and wake us up from spiritual slumber and to remind us of the truths that are so foundational to the faith, the ones that you learned when you first came to Christ. So whatever may come, whatever trials you may personally encounter, may God grant us confidence that He will complete the work that He has begun within you. And may He grant us confidence in the fact that, as the Psalter says in paraphrasing Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength in straits of present aid. Therefore, although the earth remove, we will not be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You again for Your Word and the way that it confronts us, but also the way that it strengthens us. I pray, Lord, that we would each see ourselves in in Jacob's shoes to some extent in this chapter, and that we would see the need to cling to the fundamentals of the truth that we learned at the beginning, repentance, faith, obedience, devotion, surrender. Father, may these things characterize our lives. But we know that without Your grace, we have no hope. And so we thank You that You not only give us a portion of Your grace, but that You lavish Your grace upon us. So teach us to walk in the strength of Your grace 
confident of your promises, confident in your presence with us, confident that your will will be done. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.